This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books Russian and Eurasian Studies and New Books Central Asian Studies, where we'll be speaking today with our guest, Krista Goff, who is the author of Nested Nationalism, Making and Unmaking Nations in the Soviet Caucasus, published by Cornell University Press 2021. Welcome, Krista, and thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for the invitation. So uh, Krista's bio, just a little bit about her before we get started. Krista Goff is a historian of Russia and the Soviet Union who specializes in the study of nationalism, citizenship, empire, ethnic conflict, oral history, and the North and South Caucasus. She received her PhD from the University of Michigan, a master's from Brown University, and a bachelor's with honors from McAllister College. She's also studied at universities in St. Petersburg, Irkutsk, and Baku. Dr. Goff has held postdoc and research fellowships at the Kluge Center of the Library of Congress, the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. Her research has been supported by the Social Science Research Council, Doris G. Quinn Foundation, Fulbright-Hayes Doctoral Dissertation Research Abroad Fellowship, American Councils, the University of Michigan, the University of Miami, and others. And finally, Professor Goff is the co-author of also highly recommended Empire and Belonging in the Eurasian Borderlands, published by Cornell University Press 2019. So here we go with nested nationalism. Krista, let me ask you, since, since I met you probably 20 years ago at Brown University, what, what drove you, what motivated you into this project? Well, thanks so much for the question. Actually, uh, you might be surprised to know it started before I met you all those years ago. Uh, so I actually came to this topic, kind of broadly speaking, uh, when I was an undergraduate studying at McAllister College with Jim von Gelder and Gita Hammerberg. And when I was there, I studied abroad on a really interesting ethnography program that took place in Irkutsk and Buryatia in St. Petersburg. And one of the families that I lived with during this time had migrated to Russia from the Caucasus. And when I was kind of interviewing them and other people from their um, home community for my research project that semester, I first started to kind of think about the consequential choices that minorities made in the Soviet period, and more specifically about peoples who had been doubly minoritized, that is, people who were minorities in both the old union and the republic level, the non-titular minorities who didn't have these republics named after them and therefore lacked access to the relative privileges that came along with titular status. 
And so I returned to the United States from the study abroad program thinking about these multiple levels of minoritization, about belonging and displacement, and started reading through you know, that rich literature that came out in the 90s and early 2000s about Soviet nationalities, policies, and histories, starting, of course, with Ron Suni, whose book Revenge of the Cross was so consequential for the field and who later became one of my graduate school advisors. Um, but also Douglas, Northrop, Douglas Northrop's book, Failed Empire, who I was really fortunate was my co-chair with Ron. Um, Fran Hirsch's Empire of Nations, Adrian Edgar's Tribal Nation, Terry Martin's Affirmative Action Empire. I mean, I can go on because there's such a rich list uh, that developed at this time in this field. But I was reading through these texts in college and learning so much about, you know, from these amazing texts. But I found that I still couldn't quite get to the answers that I was looking for based on the conversations that I'd had with these people who had lived as, you know, these sub-republic non-titular minorities. And that's for, you know, a number of reasons, of course. These books were written at a time when the emphasis historiographically had shifted from old Cold War era narratives that kind of, you know, decried the Soviet Union as a prison house of nations um, to this kind of constructivist approach that took Bolshevik nation-building efforts seriously and explored the ways in which the Soviet system shaped national identifications and nationhoods. And of course, you know, these sub-republic minorities, like these people that I had met and lived with and talked to, were present in these narratives, but the focus again seemed to be on titular nation-building, which, simply speaking, is just so different um, in many regards, right, from that of non-titular minorities, as I've found. And also, you know, those cases where non-social minorities were in the narrative, the histories generally ended in the 30s when the state closed programs and departments that supported or promoted these communities and identifications and cultures and assumed kind of a more assimilationist posture. You know, there's, of course, like exceptions to these trends, um, but as a, as a field as a whole, it was much more focused on titular nationhoods and chronologically tilted toward the early Soviet periods. And so, you know, with so many kind of non-titular histories leaving off at this kind of moment of assimilationist politics, readers are kind of left to assume that, you know, this is the end of these people's stories. And of course, that's not the case. And talking to this family and their friends as much as I had, I knew that there were different types of minoritization that had occurred in the Soviet Union and that non-titular minorities faced unique choices and experiences that we simply hadn't accounted for, and that these histories taught us a lot, not only about those non-titular communities, but also about Soviet governance and the titular majorities in the republics. And I think another kind of piece of this puzzle and going back to the roots of this project, um, to that period that I spent studying ethnography in Russia in the early 2000s, I've long kind of recognized the power of oral histories. Yes, yes. uh, Particularly, you know, in those contexts where you're studying and trying to foreground histories of erasure. So... For Nesta Nationalism, I worked in these archives, of course, and I tried to do that in a kind of critical manner, um, you know, to take into account the processes of historical production that occurred there. But I also conducted a lot of oral histories. And these interviews really kind of form an integral part of my attempt to write about lives that were lived outside the state's conceptual limitations 
limitations that, of course, were reproduced in some of the archival collections, and to recover in some way the stories of people who had been doubly minoritized um, and that faced, you know, assimilatory politics and discrimination and erasure, erasure that, you know, could be both conceptual and physical. Um, mm-hmm. I hope I showed here. So those are the yeah. kind of, that's a long story of the origin. Of this yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we have a lot to build on from there. And, and I'm intrigued by this idea of, of nested nationalism, which is in your, your title and, in, in focusing, let's say, not just on titular nations, but also on, call them subaltern groups, and, and maybe we can talk about that. But for the oral history, let me ask you first, um, you ended up in Armenia, Azerbaijan, even Dagestan, right, in, in Georgia and Moscow. Were, were there some surprising finds that you had as you began, um, let's say, working around the official archival sources? Sure. Um, you know, I think that's kind of a multi-layered question. So it's about, you know, what you're finding outside of the archives, uh, the state archives, that is, and then, you know, um, the different types of archives also that you're able to work in. And definitely there are a lot of ways in which uh, stepping outside of the archive was helpful for this project. It helped me uh, understand not only where to look, uh, in archives when I was kind of, um, you know, in and out of the cities, uh, going in and out of those places, but also to, um, you know, kind of recognize what was missing in those sites. And I would spend, you know, a few months out in a regional area or sometimes a few weeks, but I would kind of go back and forth, you know, live in these communities and conduct interviews and then return to Baku or to Belisi or wherever, and, um, look for records of events or schools or organizing movements that I had been told about in interviews, but I could not, you know, find a trace of in the archives. And you kind of start to think through why these absences exist. Is it because the records weren't preserved or because mm-hmm. they were destroyed after the fact, <laughs> um, which yeah. we were quite explicitly told on a number of occasions um, or because they were filed in such a way that obscures kind of their visibility or maybe they just simply didn't fit neatly into a bureaucratic category, so they weren't deemed significant enough to keep or catalog. Or maybe they were cataloged and preserved, but they aren't being made accessible. Um, There's just so many ways uh, in which the present was kind of continuously intruding on the past when I was doing my work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even when I was kind of living in a lot of communities, uh, conducting interviews, I was able to access people's personal archives. Mm-hmm. So kind of the photos or the letters, um, the articles that they had saved and collected over the years, and some that they literally dug out from hiding spots in their yards um, to kind of tell me a different story about the discriminatory practices and repression that minorities complained about in the past, but also that they continue to contend with today. Um, you know, some of the people who I tracked down and um, spoke with, had written letters of protest that I found in archives, you know, from the 50s, from the 60s. And it was sad, you know, to see with my own eyes the surveillance and repression that they're still contending with all these years later. And you can't help, I think, Mm -hmm. read archives differently, not just archival documents, but archives as institutions that you're working in, um, institutions that kind of replicate the ways of seeing and thinking of the state, 
and that mediate our access to the past, right? And you can't help but read those spaces as well as those documents differently when you do, I think, this type of mixed methods uh, work. Mm-hmm. And and I, I wonder if, Krista, if you could just simply tell our listeners how you arranged your chapters. You've got five chapters in an interlude and chapters in which you pay particularly close attention to uh, minority cultures that maybe even our listeners are not familiar with, like the Tolish culture. Um, so how, how did you decide, let's say, organizationally to, um, to arrange your book chapter by chapter? Uh, sure. So the book... Uh, spans kind of chronologically from the early years of Soviet power, you know, substantively really from the 1920s, let's say, to contemporary minority experiences. I think there, it's easy to say that there is kind of an emphasis on the mid-century decades, um, but there is kind of this longer chronological arc. And as you pointed out, there's some chapters that foreground or kind of center the non-titular minority experience other than, um, more than others. But of course, you know, the title of the book is Nested Nationalism. So I'm trying to not only speak about non-titular histories in isolation, but in um, relation to that of titular histories, right? Because the dynamic between these kind of titular majorities uh, in the Caucasus and the non-titular minorities is, you know, part of the whole story of what's happening. So uh, the first chapter, you know, it's roughly organized chronologically. The first chapter focuses on the 20s and 30s. I think this period that is most familiar to people. And it traces the processes of minoritization that took place in this period. Um, So not just kind of assuming that non-teacher minorities are minorities, but showing how they come to be minoritized and shows how uh, titular nation building and minority erasure kind of become intertwined very early on in, uh, in Soviet history. And then I move on uh, in the next chapter chronologically into the World War II period, which of course is so foundational for Soviet history as a whole, um, mm-hmm. but also for kind of the post-war trajectory of national rights and identifications in the Soviet Caucasus. So I think we often talk about how uh, you know, fundamental World War II was for Soviet nation building as a whole, um, for kind of bringing people into the Soviet narrative who maybe felt isolated or excluded from it uh, in the past. And this is kind of taking a different approach to understanding the effect of World War II on nationhood and nation building um, by looking at how Soviet foreign interventions in Iran and Turkey fed nationalisms in the Soviet Caucasus that then led to Republican elites squaring off against one another in minority areas over these kind of contested territories. Um, right. But also some horrible crimes, right? To so the dangerous stereotyping, aggressive assimilation, and internal deportation of hundreds of thousands of people um, from this region during the war and after the war and before the war. Um, but it's also a really important piece of this book because it kind of sets up these later chapters that launch into the post-Stalinist era by kind of explaining Mm -hmm. how um, wartime developments gave rise to a nationalized cohort of leaders who then later took charge of um, Azerbaijan in the 1950s. Uh, And then the kind of latter half of the book, uh, chapters three, four, and five, are all um, kind of building on one another to create kind of a multi-chapter exploration of the afterlife of early Soviet nationality policies and wartime 
disputes. The first one focuses um, more kind of on the titular story, right? To show mm-hmm. how um, kind of Azerbaijan, as I think I say, become Azer- became Azerbaijani in the 1950s and how mm-hmm. a lot of this happened on the back of minority assimilation, right? So the story of titular nation building is also in many ways quite often a story of non-titular erasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. then the subsequent two chapters, I think, really um, center much more the non-titular uh, experience. One um, through the story of the 1959 erasure of the large Tallish nationality from the census, and the other through uh, an exploration of how uh, some non-titular minorities were able to kind of engage in a rights negotiation in the 1950s and 60s that led to a revitalization of their national cultural infrastructure to kind of undo, you know, this kind of um, yeah, yeah. entrenched narrative that the 1930s were the end of the non-titular story, right, in the mm-hmm. civil I'm I'm interested if you could explain how you read um, into and maybe around this issue of erasure through censuses. This is such an intriguing story, in and it, it's woven into many chapters of your book, starting with the the All Union Census in the 30s through the one in in 1959. So, uh, what do you do, or let's say, how do you explain these histories of um, non titular minorities through the, the census, because obviously the census is is so is so reductive in, in the way that in the way that maps in the empire or maps in the Soviet Union are reductive. How do, how do you begin to interpret that and read that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So I obviously I talk about um, censuses and census erasure, you know, from the very beginning in the 1920s and 1930s. Certainly at the end of the 1930s, how these kind of um, categories are collapsed quite aggressively. And with uh, the chapter on the Tallish erasure, I wanted to kind of dig into a census that had been um, historiographically kind of constructed as um, an instance of post-Stalinist justice, right? A return of recognition, Mm. an expansion of these categories. And... And they do that by looking at the example of a people who were first erased, right? Erased in the census that has been kind of um, spoken of in these positive, more positive terms. And a way for me to understand what happened there, I think, was to approach it from multiple angles and to understand that the ethnographers and the linguists and the cartographers and the politicians and the census workers who were involved in um, kind of curating the list of nationalities for the census in executing the census itself and in reporting the census and um, reifying the results of the census through post-census articles and maps and this sort of thing actually had kind of a wide range of understanding of what the census was who should be in it, what it meant. Um, And so you actually kind of find, you know, and and this is a chapter two where I think there's a lot of absences still, right? I think that I can, Mm -hmm. I think that I understand what happened here, but some of that still rests on speculation and rests on me piecing together what I was able to find, um, you know, to tell a story where I don't know everything. (laughs) I think I'm very Mm -hmm. like, those spaces where I just couldn't, 
figure out exactly what was happening. Um, but I could, you know, kind of um, make a make a, a guess based on what I was able to piece together. And you see, you know, ethnographers in Moscow, ethnographers in the Republic who are disagreeing with one another, who are disagreeing with central officials, with Republic officials. Um, you see cartographers who are, you know, building maps um, in protest of the census, I think. We're <laughs> um, yeah. like reintroducing categories yeah. of people in the 60s and 70s who have been erased by this. Count, count, counter mappers, right? I mean, it's sort of a story of counter mapping, exactly. counter hegemonic mapping. It's interesting. Right. So I was trying to kind of, you know, show this differentiation among scientists, among uh, politicians, but also to bring in the story of people who were the subject of these conversations. And to show that, you know, censuses mattered for people's everyday lives. It mattered if you were being told that you didn't exist anymore as a people. Mm -hmm. Not only, um, you know, uh, in terms of what that does to kind of self-identification, but how it trickles down um, into policy, right? So if you're not in the census, then you have a very hard road to climb to regain um, national minority rights that others are regaining in, the, in this era in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. um, so it has mm -hmm. kind of these um, this conceptual significance for people who are being told that they don't matter and they don't exist anymore. <laughs> um, and then it also has a very practical significance, right, in terms of um, or, you know uh, creating the infrastructure around which people could organize to fight for um, fight for their rights. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm -hmm. And and I, I want to ask another, I'm asking you a lot of hard questions, I know, but um, I, I'm interested, you know, both regionally and, and in um, thinking as a geographer, how the Soviet Azerbaijan state or Azerbaijani state saw. So how, how did the state see, and, and especially, you know, in, in the legacy after 1936 and, and the story of, of the purges or deportations, and I'm thinking about your points that you make um, in several of, of the places in the book about with the oral interviews you conducted um, of this longstanding history that, that Azeris sometimes talk about of, of tolerance. So um, <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the view from the center? And then, you know, let's say, how, how do you work within and around that? Right. It's a really good question. It's a complicated question, as you know. Um, and I think it kind of gets to the kind of nestedness that I'm trying to get at with the title of the book. Obviously, I'm very much motivated by um, trying to understand and relate the history of these sub-republic minorities. But you can't do that without looking at the titular populations as well. And, you know, um, Azeris or pretty much any other <laughs> titular nationality in Soviet republics, you know, would complain and quite rightly about Russian language hegemony, Russian culture hegemony, diminishing the value of their titular language in their republics, right? Undermining the authority and the power of the titular republican officials, 
vis-a-vis Moscow. And they would, um, you know, assert the significance of promoting and using and supporting the titular language in the Republic. But at the same time that a lot of titular Republic officials were making this argument about their own national rights vis-a-vis, you know, this kind of Russian um, dominance, they were going into minority communities and depriving those same people of the right to educate their children in their own native languages, right? Mm-hmm, um, so mm-hmm. the same time they're giving a speech in Baku or Tbilisi or wherever about how important it is for children in Azerbaijan, Georgia, so on and so forth, to speak Georgian, to study Georgian, to know their mother tongue, that it's a shame uh, for a child to not know their mother tongue. They're going in minority communities and depriving those children of the right to study their own native language. Um, so, you know, in these uh, instances, there are min- these titular populations are minorities on an all-union level. They're experiencing the imbalance of center-periphery relationships in the Soviet Union, but they're also majorities in the republics in most cases, right? That's not always the case um, at all times. And republic officials are increasingly kind of in the 50s and 60s in this kind of post on this era, pursuing nationalizing assimilatory politics in non-titular minority communities where people, again, are doubly minoritized, right? It's mm-hmm. not just one minority category in the Soviet Union. There's multiple forms of minoritization that are happening, and we have to kind of look at them both in concert with one another to understand that, right? Mm-hmm. And so now... You know, in Azerbaijan, as you pointed out, there's this kind of state-backed discourse of tolerance, right? Azerbaijan is the most tolerant place. It's a model of tolerance, a model of multi-ethnicity, a model of multinationalism. Um, And it's an attempt at claiming multinationalism in a nationalist state. But this discourse, as much as it might be kind of an artifact of the present, I think it relies on these past practices of inequality. So tolerance Mm -hmm. as exercised in practice is presented as a gift that the government bestows upon the other peoples of Azerbaijan. That's a good point. But it comes with preconditions, right? Minorities must demonstrate their gratitude for this gift and accept its limitations. And it's not surprising and it's not, you know, targeting one place um, over others because no state is devoid of inequalities as I think I try to make clear in the book. Um, But the, Insistence that tolerance and equity exist, which we also hear in the Soviet period, and the refusal to acknowledge inequities, to acknowledge discrimination, to acknowledge assimilatory practices is extremely problematic. So as much as the state might claim unity, these claims you know, mask now as they did in the past um, inequities and show really, I think, the ongoing relevance of Soviet ethnogenesis theories national experiences, privileging um, the privileges of titular populations at the same time that on a different scale, on an all-union scale, they were um, not privileged, right? So mm-hmm. it's kind of a complicated story um, that is yeah. kind of all brought together, I think, in the book. And and how and where, Krista, do you bring, do you begin to bring in the history of, of Iran and in I'm thinking of the Cold War context, which is so important and, and has yeah. produced a lot of literature recently from 1946 and 47. So, I mean, how are you reading this problem? And, and I guess not just as a problem, but really about um, cultural fronts and extraterritorial legacies in the late Stalin period. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, Iran and Turkey 
I mean, they're present, I think, through the whole book, <laughs> but much more explicitly, of course, uh, in the second chapter where I'm talking about Soviet interventions or attempted interventions in uh, both of these places. Earlier on, of course, um, the presence of Iran and Turkey uh, are definitely influencing the way in which the Soviet state, both in Moscow and in the republics, uh, is managing minority populations, is um, evaluating minority populations, right? Um, evaluating kind of the risk factor of different groups. Um, Talishes, for instance, from the very start in the 1920s are kind of a suspect nationality that the state is concerned about because so many of them live in Iran um, and they're a non-titular nationality. So there's kind of more tension there about to what extent the right strategy to um, kind of disarm the cross-border danger that they're seeing um, is, is resting in building up the nationality and to what extent it's better in Soviet officials' mind to assimilate the nationality, right? So you always kind of have Iran and Turkey and this cross-border context lurking in the background. Um, but it really does, as you kind of, I think, intimate, come to the foreground uh, during World War II when the Soviet state with, you know, Britain um, invades <laughs> Iran and puts boots on the ground and um, engages in... Uh, supporting and shaping uh, national liberation movements in Kurdish and Azeri communities uh, there. Right. And it's not important just for the history of those populations in Iran. It's also important, of course, for the Soviet Union, because you also have Azeris and Kurds living in the South Caucasus. And there's no way to separate the two, right? There's no way to engage in nation building um, in Iran and encourage um, separatist tendencies and embolden national claims and keep that from bleeding over into um, the communities on the other side of the border in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So definitely mm -hmm. that is a dynamic that um, I think shows how the South Caucasus, even after these international borders are kind of formed and hardened, continues to function as a broader regional space with, um, with Turkey and Iran. Um, Krista, let me ask you about the 1950s and uh, some of the policies and, and memories of deportations and assimilations among the minority populations. I, I would like it if you could maybe introduce for our listeners um, other minority groups, such as the, the Leskins and, and what happens to them from the thought period onward. Sure. Uh, so as I already mentioned, I'm in Nesta nationalism, trying to complicate this kind of category of minority, not only to assert that there were minorities and then there were kind of double minorities, right? Um, but also to kind of break down from the very beginning the coherence of the non-titular minority category as well. Because even these sub-republic minorities had a wide range of experiences and trajectories in the Soviet uh, Union. And Leskins, if you look at Leskins and Talishes in contrast with one another, you can see a lot of differences. And one of those is that Talishes, as I mentioned, were cross-border with Iran, right? So a foreign um, non-Soviet space with, a, you know, the Soviets had a kind of a complicated history of intervention there. Um, and the Leskins were a transporter 
but with an internal Soviet republic. So Leskins lived in Azerbaijan, but they also lived in Dagestan. And they weren't a titular population in Dagestan because Dagestan didn't have one, but they were one of many nationalities there that were um, kind of privileged or principal nationalities. So they kind of shared that, uh, that principal status in Dagestan that some other nationalities kind of enjoyed exclusively in, in the higher level republics. And mm -hmm. this relationship that Leskins had, uh, Leskins and Azerbaijan had with uh, Dagestan is really important. First, because early on Dagestani officials tried at multiple points to try to intervene um, to not only assert um, territorial claims to Northern Azerbaijan, but also to position themselves as advocates for lesbian rights in Azerbaijan, which the Azeris certainly did not appreciate. Um, but also, uh, you know, in the 1950s, when we see some minority communities reversing um, the rollback of their rights in the 30s and regaining access to minority schools, to native language schools, to newspapers, to presses, we see that happening in Azerbaijan, at least, in communities that had some sort of tie to another republic in the Soviet Union, some sort of kind of a right. kin relationship, right? It's like a kin republic relationship. Um, mm -hmm. So lesbians had that, right? And they were able to leverage uh, their relationship to Dagestan and leverage the example of Dagestan to reclaim national rights in Azerbaijan. And there's okay. nothing like an example, right? Talishes would look yeah, to yeah. Iran the Talishes in Iran also having, you know, no national rights. Lesbians, however, would look to Dagestan and see lesbians having a wide range of privileges and wanting that for themselves in Azerbaijan and saying, why don't we have what mm -hmm. these people have 10 miles away on the other side of the border? We want this too. Um, and then also, you know, these kind of kin republics, in, in my story, um, those are Dagestan and Georgia. These kin republics also are kind of a physical safe haven for safe haven um, that enables minorities in Azerbaijan to uh, find uh, a place where they can organize. You know, when it gets too hot in Azerbaijan, they right. cross the border and go some, you know, go to Mahachkala or Durbent or Tbilisi. And, you know, continue their organizing there and can continue to lobby for their, you know, home communities kind of from the other side of the Soviet border. And then they'll go, yeah. you know, they'll go back home. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's what, sorry, it's what Ukrainians and Poles have been doing for centuries. But, exactly, right? You know, it, co the co-ethnic issue, right? I mean, it, it, it seems like the suspicion persists. And it's, sorry to interrupt, but. No um, yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking about this. I mean, do do you think it ch it changes, Krista? I mean, what what happens as the thaw period comes to an end? There seem to be a lot of ethnographers who are very dedicated to um, increasing the visibility of a lot of these minoritized groups. But I, I'm not. I wonder how they're operating. And could you explain some of that? Sure. So. Yeah, definitely there's distinct periods uh, for these histories. And the Thaw period, the late 50s and early 1960s for these stories um, is different from what happens later. And this was actually um, kind of a space where 
I did have to really work hard, I think, to, to find sources that could tell me about what was happening um, in the late 60s and the 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. Archivally, there were um, constraints because sure. um, a lot of archival collections that I was working with in Azerbaijan kind of petered out in the early 60s. But also in oral history interviews, you know, people remember kind of the flashpoints, right? So they would talk about the 50s and the 60s when they were fighting for these rights, but not necessarily recall so much um, what happened, you know, a little bit later. And it was actually only, I guess, two years ago now uh, when I returned to Moscow for another kind of cleanup archival trip um, and new files had been declassified in the Contemporary History Archive that I was able to piece together a little bit more what happened between the thaw period and uh, the 1980s. And what I found is that the rights contests that people engaged in in the 50s and 60s in the Ingolori community, in the Lesgian community in Azerbaijan, really did create a new status quo. And the Mm, schools that were reopened the newspaper columns that were established in the native language, right? All of these things that people regained in that um, kind of, you know, earlier thought period were still in place up until the 1980s, at least on paper. <laughs> and this mm-hmm. is another kind of yeah. big thing to point out that I think I'm able to get to through oral history interviews is that there are a lot of informal practices that you're not necessarily going to find written down on documents in archives that mediate <laughs> the policies that are written down um, and preserved in the archives, right? And so, yeah, sure, we'll have a decree that creates new schools for Ingolois and Lesgans to study in their native language. And that mm-hmm. decree will remain on paper and those schools will remain open But what we don't necessarily understand until we talk to people or we happen to stumble upon um, a really helpful document later on is that while the schools remained open, the funding got cut off to them, right? Uh, Or the library stopped collecting books in the native language. And so the library became, you know, basically useless to people who didn't speak Azerbaijani. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or people would be um, discouraged or even outright pressured to not enroll their children in the minority schools. So the minority schools exist, the decrees exist, but there's all these informal practices that undermine uh, those decrees in practice, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. definitely you have a new status quo worked out in the thought period, but there is variance after that point um, in terms of how rigorously <laughs> um, these decrees are adhered to and respected and recognized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so, I mean, this leads me to my question about historiography, Krista. So uh, one thing I, I love uh, in really from the beginning to the end about your work is in doing the field work, how you put yourself into the story um, and, and really talk, I think, honestly about some of the obstacles, some of which are formidable um, to gaining access. And these are party archives in, in Azerbaijan, obviously. But it, could you address the historiography question now? So how you um, place your work both in, in Azerbaijani context and, and then, um, as you mentioned from our, our very beginning with the work of people like Fran Hirsch and Terry Martin and Adib Halid, 
um, who have focused mainly on, as you, as you say, mainly on the 1920s and 1930s. So this is a two-part question. One is, is your contribution to, say, Azerbaijani scholarship in history and historiography, and then uh, to those who've been working on nationalities policy, and take as much time as you need, because this is such a big question. Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, so um, as you know, you know, there are ways in which I felt like I had to kind of insert my experience into the narrative so that the reader would kind of understand, I think, more clearly what some of the limitations were, what some of the absences are that remain um, in, in these histories, but also how much the present continues to weigh on our retellings of the past. Um, so that was a really important part of it. In terms of Soviet historiography, I think, or you know, history writing about the Soviet Union um, in, let's say, the English language literature, I think I've touched on this a little bit, but I'm definitely trying to push the field forward chronologically to mm. understand that the 1930s are not the end of the story, that these communities, you know, of course, in the more extreme examples, that communities that are, you know, um, erased in the census continue to exist, right? Um, But also that people continue to agitate and to fight for rights. And a lot of that is fed again through Soviet discourses that continue to tell them that that's something that they should do, right? At the same time that you have... um, Mm -hmm you know, stories uh, that are kind of reifying um, titular dominance in the republics, you still have these counter narratives uh, present in the state about, you know, the brotherhood of peoples and the equality of Soviet nationalities. (laughs) Um, And so Mm -hmm. people are never finding different things to latch onto there. And then also I'm really trying to kind of mess up (laughs) or, um, um, disrupt the way I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Sorry, go forward. I knew it. We'll, we'll see if I go where you think I'm going, but um, kind of disrupt um, the way in which people are talking about minorities in the Soviet yes. context. Uh, I think that we still have some hangovers from the Cold War era of thinking about. Um, you know, titular nationalities as repressed nationalities. And Mm -hmm. yes, if you look at it from the center periphery scale, you're going to see a lot of that. But if you shift the scale to the republics and out of the center cities of the republics, you're going to see a very different story unfolding. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, the two main interventions that I'm trying to make, um, you know, in the historiography that this book is kind of most explicitly contributing to. And then yeah. in terms of Azerbaijani historiography, that is the history writing on the subject by historians in Azerbaijan, I think there too, it's a lot of the same kind of overlapping concerns, perhaps not chronological um, because they've pushed much further uh, into the post-Stalinist period uh, precisely, I think, because the 50s and 60s are so important for Azerbaijani titular nation building. Um, But in terms of introducing non-titular minorities to the narrative in a way in which they're not playing the role of threatening the survivability of the titular nation, (laughs) um, that's certainly very different um, because, you know, in Azerbaijani historiography, um, minorities often are cast 
in kind of an enemy role um, still to this day. Mm -hmm. And I think really kind of undergirding a lot of this is a conversation that we're still having about empire nationhood uh, in the Soviet context and the way in which different audiences view um, the imperial story of, of the Soviet Union. And I think that conversations about empire and imperialism and colonialism are really important and should be had because empire is certainly a part of the story, not least because of the inequalities and insecurities that are generated in relationships between Moscow and the non-Russian republics. Um, but, be, but the Soviet Union was also a very much a nationalizing space. And there were many different forms of violence that are at the heart of that process, right? And so just as the history and the idea of empire kind of inextricably intertwined with violence and difference and exploitation, we should also critically examine um, the other side of this, right? And so just because empires are bad doesn't mean that nations, which kind of often replace them or battled with them, are good. And mm -hmm. so what I think I'm trying to do that's different, um, not only for kind of English language historiography, but also the work that's coming out of Azerbaijan, is explore the intersecting dynamics um, in spaces where people are at once experiencing inequalities and pressures vis-a-vis Moscow, a story that I think by now is fairly well told, but also vis-a-vis -vis the nationalizing agents and republics who've built titular national identifications and communities, as I said earlier, on the back of minority erasure who complained about discrimination and Russian hegemony infringing on their national autonomy, but turned around and enacted many of those same practices to marginalize and minoritize and violate non-titular communities and identifications um, in the republics. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. as um, Louis uh, Siegelbaum and I kind of conclude in the introduction to um, Empire and Belonging, nations also have to take ownership of their own behaviors. You can't mm -hmm. cast all blame for national violence on imperial past, right? And violence is an integral part of the histories of both empires and nations. And it's time, I think, that we spend a little bit more time <laughs> in Soviet history talking about um, the latter part of that of that factor. Mm -hmm. And and would you also say that there's a, a role for rural communities and, and villagers? Because it, you have so many interesting sources, both or, oral um, and with, with letters, as you're mentioning in the conclusion. Um, how, I mean, how do you see a political dialogue, let's say, uh, you know, on the grand scale, if we're talking about the conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh again, but, but also, let's say, on, on local, local scales? Do you, do you see that as something that, that can happen in the near future using this period from the 30s to the 80s and beyond? Um, yeah, so different scales, I think moving across different scales of analysis is really important. Um, for multiple questions, including the ones that you just pointed to. You know, for instance, let's, let's take the example of what, of Russification, right? Um, so what might look like Russification in an urban area or a central city of a republic often looks quite different, right, in rural regions of that same republic. Um, and we see that happening in the 1930s. So, um, you know, there's been kind of, uh, you know, myriad discussions about the effect of uh, Russian language, uh, mandatory Russian language um, education policies that came into play in 1938. 
But on the local level, in the republics, this played out not necessarily as a story of versification, but of titularization mm-hmm. of minority schools being closed and replaced, not with Russian schools and Russian instruction, but with instruction in the titular language of the republic, a language that many minorities at this point still didn't know and didn't necessarily want to know, right? Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, if you you shift down to the Republic level and then you kind of take that further step of pushing out of the Republic center, out of the capital city of the Republic into the different regions of the Republic and the national minority regions of the Republic, then you start to see kind of history unfolding in, in very different ways and in, from very different perspectives. Um, I wonder uh, for our audience here at New Books Network, if you could uh, talk a little bit about what you would regard as the big takeaway points from your research in the book, and maybe uh, if you could suggest two or three other authors and other books. Right. Uh, so it's always hard to kind of narrow down, right? Um, but I think uh, there's a number of kind of big points that I want people to walk away with. And I think one of them is that we need to continue to push the field forward chronologically. We need to continue to kind of disrupt the categorizations that I think we've become fairly comfortable with in the field. Um, And we also need to kind of continue to think about the methods that we're bringing to bear um, in the histories that we're writing about, uh, about the Soviet Union. So I think all of those things, you know, my book is building on the important work that a lot of other people have done before me. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing how people kind of build on what I'm trying to do here with this nationalism. And in terms of, um, you know, new books that I, I think people should you know check out, there's so many. <laughs> um, and there's also a lot of really exciting work. I'm happy to say that's about to come out on the history of the South Caucasus. Um, Sarah Berniger and Claire Kaiser both have books in the pipeline about early Soviet Azerbaijan and Soviet Georgia. But um, in terms of books that are already out, I would definitely point people toward Ron Suni's new biography of Stalin, Mm -hmm. which is very unique, um, not least because Ron has language skills, um, knowing Georgian and uh, Armenian and Russian. So he's able to kind of really push uh, the story of Stalin in directions that it hasn't been taken uh, before. And then also I would like to kind of highlight the work of one of my colleagues um, who works in the North Caucasus, Patima Taknaeva, who in 2019 published a really fascinating study of Haji Marat that draws mm. on a wide range of sources from Moscow and Petersburg and Tbilisi and Mahachkala in, again, a wide range of languages to mm. explore not only the biography of this character who I think, you know, thanks to Tolstoy has captured the imagination um, and probably drew a lot of people, a lot of our colleagues into the field. Right. Um, sure. But also yes. the myths that have formed around his story. Um, mm-hmm. And even just the reception of her book, I think tells us a lot about the way in which Haji Marat has become kind of this politicized figure in the region. So definitely check out um, Ron's book, Patamont's book, and keep an eye out for books that are that are uh, coming out on the South Caucasus soon. Excellent. Uh, we were really excited to have Ron here at, at New Books, and, and I read his biography. It, it's, it's a remarkable achievement. I know he worked on it for so many years. So um, right. thank you for those rec- recommendations. Um, and if you would, you know, in the last few minutes, talk about your current projects or interests or research for our listeners. 
Um, sure. So right now I have two things that I'm working on. I am trying my best to finish up a, a DH mapping project that I am hoping will be a digital companion to nested nationalism. And I'm working with a geography um, PhD candidate at Berkeley, Eve McLinn, to kind of cross the finish line on that hopefully this year. But that is drawing on these kind of hidden maps of, um, you know, hidden kind of ethnographic or national maps of the South Caucasus. And we've um, digitized them and vectorized them. And we're hoping that they'll be kind of um, available to the general public for people to be able to really kind of see um, the counter mapping that was taking place that we talked about earlier. Um, but the different ways in which the diversity of the Caucasus is represented over time. Um, and in different times. And then I'm also working on a new book project, um, which is building out of nested nationalism, but is bridging more explicitly North and South Caucasus history and more substantively uh, North and South Caucasus history and focusing on um, uh, migration. So it starts with national migrations mm. during World War II but extends through various related waves of migration and really tries to uncover the afterlife of these national deportations. So not just um, the act of deportation, the experience of deportation, but the ways in which these kind of cleansed spaces were remade, not only demographically, but um, economically and nationally, um, and environmentally, uh, in the wake of, of these violent, um, violent migrations. Mm -hmm. Krista, I I'm having a lot of trouble being silent because I'm so excited <laughs> about both of these projects. I am containing my enthusiasm about the mapping projects. I, I know you've been working on this for a while as well. Yeah. Uh, there's so much um, great DH stuff that's coming out now. Um, and, and the DH mapping group as well. Um, I'm, I'm so happy to see that they're getting grants and things for their work. Um, and as for, yeah, I mean, as for migration, you know, the work of Louis Siegelbaum that you mentioned as well, things like Broad is My Native Land. Um, I'm, I'm so excited and I hope you go forward uh, in researching this. Where, where would you go, Krista, to, to do research on the new project? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I have a lot of places to go. So we'll see, uh, you know, when the pandemic <laughs> finally, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. do that again, how that looks. But I've already done a lot of preliminary work for it um, in Tbilisi and in Moscow and um, some in Mahachkala and Vladikavkaz. Okay. And uh, my next research project, which I or research trip, which I thought I would take last year, um, is uh, kind of aiming to go to Grozny and then back to Mahachkala to do um, kind of more substantive work and build on the preliminary work that I already done. And this is also kind of a project that um, builds on an article that I have coming out later this year in Slavic Review, looking mm -hmm. at this mass migration of Azeris from Armenia to Azerbaijan um, in the late 40s and early 50s, and thinking through the complicated categorization of forced and unforced migration and the ways in which um, migrants could at once uh, kind of be categorized as 
voluntary migrants, but also still experience a lot of force, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, pressure yeah. migrating. And also once they're kind of um, on the ground and in their migrations. And I have to say, I mean, working with Lewis on Empire and Belonging um, was, you know, very formative for the direction mm-hmm. that my, my research is taking in the future. So I'm really grateful to that partnership with Lewis. Well, well, on that Michigan note, Krista, let, let me congratulate you um, from Providence, Rhode Island to San Diego to Miami and back again in our vectors <laughs> on the publication of your wonderful book. Uh, it is out now with Cornell University Press 2021. Krista Goff has been our guest here, and she's been talking to us about nested nationalism making and unmaking nations in the Soviet Caucasus. Thank you so much, Krista, for joining us today. Thank you so much for your time and for the invitation. I'm really grateful for this opportunity. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at New Books Network and New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies and New Books in Central Asian Studies today. Until next time.